Welcome to a very special episode of our show, recorded live this past weekend at Restaurant Nora in Washington, D.C., with an audience gathered from around the country. Because, as always, if Washington wants to get right with voters, it has got to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. Kristen Roberts. Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations all around America that together make McClatchy. Every week, I call the political writers from throughout our organization and I ask them, what are voters in your battleground state saying about Donald Trump's Washington? But this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We have taken the occasion of the White House Correspondents Association's annual dinner to gather you here to talk about the 2018 congressional contest. Now, 2018 was always going to be a little bit dodgy for the Democrats. That's especially true in the Senate. Republicans are defending eight seats. Democrats are defending 10 in states that Donald Trump won. Now, in the House, the math and the map, they're a little bit more fluid. Midterms are never really great for the party that holds the White House, and Democrats are quite eager to exploit Donald Trump's unpopularity. Midterms also pull to the voting, bo- to the voting booth Voters that are whiter and older than most of the rest of the electorate, and increasingly those people are going to the Republican Party. Add to the mix the question of whether these parties can recruit the very best candidates in such an uncertain environment, and this is going to be a fun nail-biter. We have in the room with us today two of the most qualified people in America to talk about this contest. We have Matt Gorman of the National Republican Congressional Committee. And we have Meredith Kelly, who is from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So if Matt, you will join me on this little stage here, and Katie Glick, our senior political correspondent. Let's get started. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Matt, thank you for doing this. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Katie, thanks for coming to work on a Saturday. Very happy to be here. Okay, good. Matt, what is the Washington media getting wrong about Republican prospects for 18? I think there's a tendency to proclaim that we have all the answers and that we know how Election Day 2018 is going to shape up when we're four months into the cycle. Even though the pace of everything has been kind of breakneck and it feels like we're four months out from an election day, not four months just removed from one, essentially, with the start of the cycle. I think there's been a lot of bold proclamations on how this is going to shape up. And I mean, I always use use the example, I was at the NRCC in the 2014 cycle, and the government shut down a year before election day, 2014. There was gloom and doom talk for Republican chances, and then we had the greatest gains we've had since the Great Depression. So I think that's the biggest thing that people are getting wrong, are these kind of proclamations about, you know, where things stand today. 
so, of course, to make the point that it's very early, it's yeah. certainly an unpredictable moment. Um, but at the same time, the NRCC has already identified your top targets mm -hmm. looking ahead to 2018. What's new about the kinds of districts that you're able to target in the Trump era? I think what we saw from 2016, and we're kind of reacting to on this now, is the ability for some of these districts in the Midwest that have been getting progressively Repu more Republican through the course of the last 10 years or so, breakthrough kind of with the Trump victory. And so those are, you know, districts in Iowa, Minnesota, Michigan, Western Pennsylvania, seats that, you know, had been reliably Democratic and, you know, usually are whiter and blue collar. Um, we see an opportunity for those. There were some kind of canaries in the coal mine, um, especially, for instance, in Western PA with uh, Matt Cartwright, who he, he was a Democrat against a very underfunded opponent who really didn't have much of a campaign, he won in a pretty tight race. And so I think we kind of see opportunities in those types of areas in 2018. So the flip side of that, of course, is Democrats, and, and we may hear a little bit about this later. Yeah. Democrats have, of course, identified districts mm -hmm. where Hillary Clinton won, but that mm -hmm. are currently held by Republicans. Yeah. And yeah. You know, they talk about those as being new opportunities. Absolutely. How do you stop them from turning that into a I real th opportunity? I think Democrats. the same way we've done it in, in cycles past. I mean, look, a, a lot of the targets, you know, and, and Meredith will, I'm sure, expand on this when she gets up here. A lot of these targets have been targets for several cycles. Those are folks like Barbara Comstock in Virginia. Steve Knight in California, Carlos Cabello in South Florida. And so I think, you know, they want to play in the suburbs and make that the kind of the battleground um, where I think we want to kind of expand the map and go more into Trump country. What do you think Democrats are getting wrong when they look at these opportunities that Katie talks about? I think they tend to nationalize the race and they have done it consistently in the past several cycles. I think, you know, a mistake last cycle was, was tying everything to Trump and thinking that was going to be the savior for their House chances. And it clearly wasn't. I think when you see, you know, we talked about the Clinton districts represented by Republicans. So only one of those Republican members won by under two points, Daryl Issa. The rest won by an average of about eight to ten points. Like a guy named like John Katko up in New York, he won his district by 21 points. Hillary won it by 10. So there's a real recognition in these districts that their members are independent. They speak to their local issues, you know. What we try and do is make sure that our candidates and also our members are making sure that they're speaking to the priorities of the folks in their district. We are also going to ask for questions from you. You'll see that on your tables you have some index cards and a pen. If you have a question, please write it down and pass it toward the middle. Let's get a mic, please, over to Colin Campbell of the News and Observer in Raleigh. He's one of our political correspondents who is on our show very, very regularly, and I told him he better have a really good question. <laughs> Well, I want to give you sort of a hypothetical as we go into 2018. Oh, joy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so obviously the, you know, the year is still fairly young. Things yeah. can happen. But let's assume that no health care bill gets passed by next year. No tax reform bill gets passed because those are obviously huge challenges for the Trump administration, the Republicans in Congress. How much would that be a hindrance to Republican incumbents winning re-election next year in Congress? I think that's pretty extreme hypothetical. I, I think, you know, one of the lessons that we learned, and, and we're seeing it now, is right, is, is that people want us to deliver on what we've been kind of talking about. And again, like as I kind of alluded to before, I, there's a lot of big pronouncements being made where, you know, it's not even the end of April yet, right? So, you know, I, I'm not there yet. But I think as, you know, we've been very clear, and Speaker Ryan's been very clear that, you know, I think we have to, you know, make sure that we're delivering on the promises, and we have been, to be fair. We have Justice Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. We've done a host of regulatory reform that has really, uh, I think, is going to spur job growth. People have feel good about the economy. Consumer confidence is up. The stock market's up. There are changes. I think, you know, 
we've been undertaking some big projects. A fifth of the economy we're trying to change, you know, with, with healthcare. Tax reform hasn't been done since 86. There are reasons why, right? And even with Democrats, they had veto-proof majority in the Senate, a huge majority in the House, and a Democratic president. And it still took them a year and a half to get Obamacare passed, right? So I'm not there yet. I am going to go with the question from Meredith Kelly. Oh, joy. <laughs> now, Meredith, I'm sure, typed this very neatly, yeah. and then it was written down by Alex Rorty in a handwriting that I can only describe as elementary. <laughs> um, so Meredith yeah. asks you, yeah. mm -hmm. your committee has pushed the AHCA, that's Paul Ryan's um, repeal and replace legislation, Aggressively, despite your primary job being to protect vulnerable Republicans in their reelection, can you honestly say that you hope the health care repeal bill will be brought up for its third time next week, and why? I disagree with the premise on that. I think that, uh, <laughs> shocking. Sorry, Meredith. Shocking. Um, what we've said consistently is that members need to do the right thing for their, their districts, right? And there is a, a host of issues at play. And again, when you're dealing with the fifth of the economy and the subjects as complex as health care, every state, every district is going to have different concerns, right? And so in New York, what we're seeing with Medicaid payments on the state and local level, and other states too, you know, some have a smaller Medicaid population, other ones have bigger ones, right? What we simply want to do is make sure that they fit their districts and that they're doing the right thing for their constituents. We support our members. We're a member-driven organization, and we're going to stand behind them. I see a question approaching. Mm. How do you combat President Trump's low approval ratings? I mean, quite frankly, we ran with him on the ballot in 2016, and I think voters saw, no matter what he was in the district, whether he had a high approval rating in the district or whether he had a, you know, a middle of the road or a low approval rating in the district, they saw that their congressman or woman was independent and speaking to their issues, right? Some candidates might want President Trump there, some might not. That's their decision to make. But I'll also say this, too. You know, one of the unwritten about things is, he, he, look, he's been very supportive of the NRCC and the committee. I think he realizes the stakes of the election. And Vice President Pence has, too. He just spoke at our fundraising dinner in March, raised $30 million, beat the previous record by over $10 million. So they're very engaged. They realize the stakes of this election. He realizes the need for a, a strong Republican majority in the House. And we've had a pretty good relationship with the White House. It's time for the lightning round. If any of you oh listen to our show, I ask all of our panelists to name one person, and in Anita Kumar's case, one issue. Hello, Anita, out there. <laughs> Who is making moves relevant to the 2018 or 2020 contest. And we've asked Matt and Meredith both to bring us a name of a recruit or a yeah. candidate that we should be watching. So, Matt, you're up. I want to plug, uh, shamelessly, Eddie Edwards. Uh, he's in New Hampshire's first district. He's running against incumbent Democrat Carol Shea Porter. If you don't know the contours of that race at all, that's a district that's flip-flopped between Republicans and Democrats over the last couple cycles. It was previously held by Republican Frank Ginta. So Mr. Edwards is a uh, former police chief and a former liquor commissioner. And so he just got in a couple weeks ago. We're really excited. And she's a very vulnerable incumbent, too. She's pretty far left for that district that's actually a Republican-leaning district. She is not a good fundraiser. She's sponsoring a Medicare for All bill. So I think there's going to be a really good race. And no matter who we kind of get out of that primary, I think it'll be a fun race and one to watch. Awesome. Thank you so much Thank for you doing this. If I could please have Meredith and Alex Rorty, another one of our political correspondents, join me. So, um, 
Democratic voters seem pretty energized. Trump is um, popular. Uh, Democratic candidates in special elections have had a stronger showing in the past few weeks than the party did in 16. Are you poised to retake the House? Well, I was actually going to make a quick point. Matt said it's too early to know exactly what will happen next cycle, and I do agree, but I am willing to make a proclamation today that he may not like. We will absolutely be picking up seats in 2018. It's really just a question of how many. So yeah, we're really excited. I think you don't need to look much further than Georgia 6 to see why someone like myself might be very excited about the next year and a half. It's a district that Democrats rarely get over 38 to 40% of the vote uh, besides Hillary Clinton. And we have a candidate, John Ossoff, who got to 48 in an 18-person primary. And he earned a great deal of votes from independents and even Republicans, because that's the only way you get to 48. So we have a really competitive runoff ahead of us on June 20th. And that's just one example of the energy we're seeing across the country that makes me very excited and our committee very excited. Meredith, I want to ask you, I mean, so much of the strategy in 2016 was linking House Republican candidates to Donald Trump. I know it's early, but is that a strategy you think the party can afford to repeat in this year's midterm races? Well, I think when you think about Donald Trump and how we will be litigating this election cycle, he certainly sets the stage. I think there's no doubt that he impacts us all on a day-to-day basis. And that is helping our committee in recruitment and in fundraising and certainly creating a lot of energy on the ground. We will raise money off of that. We will get people to run for office that are incredibly qualified because of that. But it is not necessarily going to be our strategy in terms of how we litigate the House Republicans. They're making a great case for us all on their own. Look no further than the Republican repeal bill, which Matt uh, sidestepped the question about. Um, But this has been incredibly embarrassing for them. They try and try again to fulfill a seven-year promise to repeal Obamacare. And not only have they failed on the process and on getting consensus amongst themselves, the American people are not on their side. And we're seeing that every single day in these town halls and just in polling on its own. (laughs) I want to ask you about uh, Tom Perez. He's the new chairman of the Democratic National Committee. He said recently that the party should only support candidates who support abortion rights. Mm -hmm. Will the DCCC refuse to recruit candidates who are pro-life? So we are a political committee. We are not in the business of pushing policy or deciding policy. Our job is to win House races. So we look for candidates that fit the districts, and we are competing in an expanded battlefield, rural districts, suburban districts, diverse districts, the Midwest. And we look for candidates that fit the districts, so that's how we make those decisions. Alex, share with everyone some of the reporting that's coming out on Monday about the data and what we've learned from 2016 about why the Democrats did so poorly, and then... After that, I'd ask you, Meredith, to talk about that and whether you think the candidate is what matters here or the turnout operation more. Go ahead, Alex. Well, what's interesting is, you know, there's been a lot of, obviously, debate about why Hillary Clinton lost, but there is a a formula or or a process that Democrats can use that, short of a census, is actually the definitive assessment. Basically, they assess what are called voter files, which is a report from every state about who voted and who didn't vote. And then they match that to existing data, which is very, very comprehensive, enough that everyone here would probably be a little weirded out about how much political parties know about you. And basically, the conclusion of all this was that Hillary Clinton lost at least more than two-thirds of the reason she lost was basically because there were voters who backed President Obama in 2012 and then backed Donald Trump in 2016. And that might be very surprising to you, but the data on this according to senior officials in Hillary Clinton's campaign, you know, senior Democratic consultants and strategists, is very clear on this issue. And so and that brings me uh, to the, the question to you, Meredith. 
there's so much talk about the Democratic Party mobilizing its base. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no question that the base for the Democrats are very motivated right mm -hmm. now. But how important is it to win over those voters who did vote for President Trump in 2016? That's a great question. We are not leaving a single district or a single voter untouched or, you know, we want everyone to hear from us, including those Obama, reliable Obama voters in both cycles and then people that voted for Trump. We need to earn their trust back. Clearly, we did not connect with them, and they're incredibly important to us in the 2018 cycle. Everyone has their own assessments of what went wrong, and we do too, but we want to make sure we're not just relying on black and white polling. We are doing a great deal of uh, focus groups this cycle, earlier than ever before, and particularly focused on people that may have voted for Obama and then Donald Trump. Time for a question from Chris Catalago of the Sacramento Bee. Here comes your mic. Thank you. So there's been a tremendous amount of energy out there. We've seen uh, folks out there marching and rallying. How would you assess that and its impact on the 2018 midterms? Is this uh, the Tea Party or is this Occupy Wall Street? <laughs> um, I'll answer the first part of your question. So we recognized that energy very early. Uh, back in January, our committee noticed something really interesting is going on here. And we invested right away in harnessing that energy and gearing it towards House Republican accountability in 2018. We launched a March into 18 program, which is in the beginning of February, put 20 organizers in Republican-held districts. Now it seems a little bit obvious, but at the time it was very unusual to do, and it's earlier than we've ever put people in the field. What they're doing is talking indivisible, talking to local progressive groups, and making sure that they feel connected to the DCCC and therefore ultimately connected with the Democratic candidates that emerge in those districts. And it's people want change, and what we want them to know is there's a way to make change in two years, not four. This is Matt's question for you. The DCCC worked against their special election nominees in Kansas and Montana. What are they specifically doing to bridge the gap between Bernie Sanders' wing of the party and the DTRIP, especially after the blame post-Kansas? They're being outspent two or three to one in Montana, after all, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> well, I think the fact that Matt is asking me about districts in Montana and Kansas 4 is telling of the environment, first of all. The fact that we are having this discussion is notable. That being said, we have absolutely not worked against the candidate in Kansas 4. I'm actually surprised Matt brought that up. It was a 20-point swing from the presidential results just a few months ago in, in Democrats' favor. So while we didn't win it, it was an incredibly positive sign for us and one that I don't think anyone could have predicted. We've got time for an audience question, and there are a lot of good ones here, but dealer's choice, I'm going to go with this one. What's the ceiling for Democratic gains in 2018, given the amount of gerrymandering that favors Republicans throughout the country? I, I genuinely am not trying to sidestep the question when I say it is it is impossible to say right now. We are, I agree with Matt very much that it's way too early to know precisely what kind of environment we'll be dealing with in a year and a half. What I can say is we are dealing with an offensive battlefield. Republican held seats will ultimately be in the 90 or so range in mm -hmm. terms of number of races and how many of those become truly viable where we spend millions of dollars is another question, but that is a very, very large battlefield considering how gerrymandered a lot of these districts are. All right, lightning round, who do you got? On that note of an expanded battlefield, I thought it would be interesting to highlight California 50, Duncan Hunter's seat, who many of you know is under some investigations right now. But even beside that, we have a Navy SEAL named Josh Butner, who he's not currently a Navy SEAL, obviously, but he spent his career in service. Then he's a member of the school board. And, you know, we've got a lot to watch with him and what he can do. But 
the fact that we have a solid veteran with elected experience in a district like that is evidence of our expanded battlefield and the fact that we're getting top tier recruits in districts across the country. Meredith, thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course. This Alex. Was really fun. I hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed recording it. It was a really fun weekend. Thank you again to Matt Gorman and Meredith Kelly for joining us, and of course to Katie Glick and Alex Rorty for being there too. Thanks to producer Jordan Marie Smith and executive producer Davin Coburn, as well as Connie Heiberg and our tech crew, and thank you to the audience who joined us for the recording. We really love doing this show, so please check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use and leave us a review. Send us some questions and some comments to btb at mcclatchy.com. That's BTB as in beyond the bubble. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground state. We might even ask you to call into the show. Talk to you next week.